0: This summer at UU General Assembly, the author and activist Chris Krass facilitated a workshop on the movement toward collective liberation. One of his questions that he asked that has really stuck with me is, who was it that got you involved in the movement for justice? Who was it for you? who got you involved in the movement for justice? That can look like a lot of different ways for a lot of different ones of us. I would invite you to consider that just being here, just being part of a congregation, um, part of whose mission is to act for peace and justice in the world, that's a step into the movement for justice in the world. So uh, Chris's question uh, made me pause and really think back in gratitude on the mentors, on the ancestors who came before me and made possible all of the twists and the turns of progress, of social progress, that we enjoy today, even as those promises are not yet fully realized. And I also experienced that question of who was it that got you involved in the movement for justice as an invitation to consider the ways that we can inspire others to join the movement toward peace, liberty, and justice that truly is not just for some, but for all. Chris's question reminds me that as a straight, white, able-bodied, heterosexual male from South Carolina, it was not inevitable that I would become involved in the struggle for collective liberation, by which I mean the movement to dismantle sexism, racism, homophobia, ableism, and other forms of oppression, that we might all be free. Last week in a sermon on toxic masculinity, one point I invited you to consider is that many straight white men in our country today have become so accustomed to racism, to sexism, and homophobia, giving them unfair advantages, that equality has come to feel like oppression. But the loss of privilege, the loss of unfair entitlements, is not the same as reverse discrimination. Along those lines, I invite you to hear an excerpt from a reflection written by Chris Crass about his experience as a straight, white male who has chosen to wear a Black Lives Matter button as he goes around his daily life where he lives in Knoxville, Tennessee, which is not exactly a bastion of liberalism. Uh, He writes, For me... Wearing this Black Lives Matter button, it's about breaking a centuries-old code of white silence and white consent for racist violence, white privilege, and white entitlement. Entitlement to safety and comfort at the expense of people of color having the same. Entitlement to our white children not needing to think about the color of their skin or wondering if the color of their skin puts them at risk of socially or state-sanctioned violence. What, as one of my colleagues wrote about the headline this past week of 13-year-old shot and killed by police in Columbus, Ohio. She wrote, anyone who, pay, who is paying attention knows, without even clicking on the story, that the dead 13-year-old is black. Crass continues about his choice to daily wear that Black Lives Matter button. He says, this is about choosing which side of justice we put our bodies on. He said, I want to stand in the tradition of Unitarian Universalist abolitionists and Unitarian Universalist civil rights workers, knowing that even within our tradition, that has not always been easy. He said, I want to stand on the side of love like we did for marriage equality, even when it was illegal in every state and scary for some of us to be out about being for same-sex marriage rights. He says, I reflect on the moments when I'm scared of wearing this button and how minuscule it is, and then I meditate on the daily devastation of anti-black racism on the lives of black people in our life and our society, people who can't take off their skin. He says, and when I realized that, he said, I pray. I pray for my four-year-old son and his little one-month-old brother because I remember how when I grew up, The most vocal people in the white community speaking about race were all racists. And I pray that my sons grow up with courageous, passionate, visionary anti-white racists in every part of this society. He says, I pray and I call forward the name of ancestors from Harriet Tubman and William Lloyd Garrison to Ella Baker and Ann Braden. I pray for the leadership of Alicia Garza, Patrice Cullors, Opal Tometi, Eleandra Williams, Carla Wallace, Tufara Muhammad, and the many others who are building this deeply life-affirming movement every day. Now, I've heard Krass speak a few times. I've read both his books. And part of, me, of what impresses me about him is that he's done his homework. He spent a significant amount of time immersing himself in the history of the struggle for collective liberation and building relationships with those on the front lines of collective liberation today. I'm a fairly well-read person, but in reading Chris's work on more than one occasion, he has name-checked people that I have no idea who he's talking about. The names are well known in some activist circles, but to be honest, there are many ways that our culture is based on dead white aristocratic males. That's the names that we know, um, the first off the tip of our tongue, often. Now, I'm not saying to throw out European culture. I'm just saying we should expand our culture even uh, further than we have typically to increasingly include even more the perspectives of women, the perspectives of the working class, African Americans, American Indians, the working poor, immigrant laborers, both historically and today. I don't have time to go through the names of all of those. Did anybody know who every single one of those names that I, okay, I would be really, really surprised and impressed if you did. I don't have time to go through all of them. You all have access to Google. Um, so some of them I recognized as leaders of the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, but the name that stood out most to me from Crass' list was from his opening line. He said, I call forward the names of ancestors from Harriet Tubman and William Lloyd, G- William Lloyd Garrison to Ella Baker and Ann Braden. Now, I knew those first three names a lot better than I knew any of the other names on his list. And I actually alighted that list. There were even more um, names on it. Uh, but Anne Braden was new to me. She's a woman, right? She's not a dead white man. Uh, so, not counting anyone who Googled her, if you saw my sermon title in advance, how many of you knew before that who Ann Braden was? Good, I didn't, I didn't either. Uh, Chris mentioned her in um, mis- mentioning her in passing, inspired me to learn more. I'm like, if she's on the level of Ella Baker and William Lloyd Garrison, and like, it's like, who is this Anne Braden? To give you just a brief overview of her fascinating life, Ann Braden was born in 1924 in Louisville, Kentucky. To a family with deep roots in that state, Anne's great, 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 great—that's five greats—grandmother, also named Anne, was one of the first few dozen pioneers to settle Kentucky with Daniel Boone in 1775. Braden had what could be called a fairly privileged white Southern childhood. She was groomed to be a debutante and was in a sorority. Did y'all get this handout as you came in? So if you take choir, I'll give this to you um, before the next service. Uh, So if you look on this side, you can see that's Ann Braden. You know, in her is a debutante. You can see her married with children. Um, We'll flip it over in a second, and you'll see that it uh, gets a little different. She graduated from college in 1945, which meant that Ann Braden came of age at the end of World War II. She was part of that last generation of Southern whites to grow up under Jim Crow's segregation so blatant and static that it took a huge internal shift to throw off the lessons of her childhood. The turning point for her was becoming a journalist, meeting colleagues. That that question from Chris Crass, you know, who was it that got you involved in the movement for justice? For her, it was meeting a journalist and colleagues, including her future husband, who were activists already for racial and economic justice. She started reading the books they were reading, talking to them about the causes they were interested in. Now, looking back on 1948, she was just a few years out of college. She was in the early stages of her professional career, and that was that turning point. About that year, Braden wrote, I had grown up in a totally restricted world. She had never eaten with a a person of color until into, into college. She said, I grew up in a world that was passe, and she said, I've come to see that I grew up in a world that was morally wrong. In ways that I didn't analyze then, I was already questioning that world. On the other hand, everything in my life, even as she was questioning, everything in my life had geared me toward becoming a success in that world according to that world's standards. In that year, I think I changed sides in the class struggle. Essentially, I came to identify with the oppressed instead of the oppressor, and that changed my whole worldview. When I realized that I had grown up part of a privileged class that only enjoyed its place in society because not only black people, but also because most of the rest of the population was subjugated. I just had to turn the world as I saw it and the world within myself inside out. Anne got married in that same paradigm-shifting year, and although she was not a church attender when she said, where can I get married, where did she go? The Unitarian Church. Part of what most impressed, um, uh, part of what most impresses me about Ann Braden is her steadfast commitment to social justice for almost six decades, starting from that pivotal year of 1948 and going through the end of her life at age 81. She and several peers, such as Ella Baker and Fannie Lou Hammer, were among the few adult women that young student activists could look to in the early 1960s for elders who possessed the capacity that they could admire rather than reject as either too conservative or too subservient to men. To give just one example of how her decades-long commitment to activism continued late into her life, if you'll flip the page to look at the other side, you'll see that at age 72, she was arrested with nine others demonstrating to protest the lack of minority hiring for Professional Golfers Association tournaments in Louisville. They were successful because when the PGA returned to Louisville in 2000, one-third of the vending contractors went to minority firms. Also impressive is that the early years of her activism for social and economic justice, those were in the late 1940s and the early 1950s, before the Civil Rights Movement. Indeed, a week before the Supreme Court decision in 1954 of Brown versus the Board of Education that school segregation was unconstitutional, Ann Braden and her husband served as a front to help a young black family, the Wades, buy their dream home. You can see a picture of the Wades on your handout. It looks like a lovely family. Um, Andrew Wade was a World War II veteran and an electrical contractor. But there was not a single ready-built stone-type house for sale to blacks in the entire Louisville metropolitan area. When the Wades had been told no by all of the white families that they knew, they asked the Bradens because the Bradens had a reputation as white allies for black freedom. As I've heard many people say, if you really want to become a more multicultural person or group, become known as an ally in the struggle for racial justice. Just show up in the struggle for racial justice, and you will find yourself increasingly in relationship with a wide diversity of people. There were, of course, consequences for their courage, including death threats. You can see the window broken in the the Wade's house. It was also uh, a wall was bombed in their house. But uh, with all the anti-communist hysteria of the McCarthy period, the most impactful consequence for the Bradens was that Anne's husband served two prison sentences, both many months long, on trumped-up charges of sedition that were really about silencing dissent against the racist status quo. But because the Bradens had long proven themselves as allies in the struggle for social justice, you know, for decades up until that point, in 1961, when they were seeking clemency for Anne's husband, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. bravely signed the petition, which was a real risk for King as well, who himself faced unfair and exaggerated um, charges of being a communist sympathizer. Indeed, I was stunned to learn that Chris Crass was actually not the first time I had heard Ann Braden name-checked. Consider this paragraph from Dr. King's famous 1963 letter from a Birmingham jail. He writes, Oppressed people cannot remain oppressed forever. I had hoped that the white moderate would see this need. Perhaps I was too optimistic. Perhaps I expected too much. I suppose I should have realized that few members of the oppressor race can understand the deep groans and the passionate yearnings of the oppressed race. And still fewer have the vision to see that injustice must be rooted out by strong, persistent, and determined action. I'm thankful, however, for some of our white brothers and sisters in the South who have grasped the meaning of this social revolution and are committed to it themselves. They are still too few in quantity, but they are big in quality. Some, such as Ralph McGill, Lillian Smith, Harry Golden, James McBride, Dabs, Anne Braden, and Sarah Patton Boyle, have written about our struggle in eloquent and prophetic terms. Others have marched with us down nameless streets of the South. Unlike so many of their moderate brothers and sisters, they have recognized the urgency of this moment and sensed the powerful action antidotes needed to combat the disease of segregation. May we each find our way to recognizing the urgency of this present moment and sensing the ways that we can act in our spheres of influence for peace and justice. Specifically regarding the Black Lives Matter movement, if you look back at what Braden said regarding the Black Power movement in her own day, I think it's safe to say that if she were alive, she would be wearing a Black Lives Matter button. In Braden's words, our society has lived by white power. Unless black people create their own power, there can never be an authentic meeting ground. That being said, I will certainly grant that the struggle for collective liberation, of moving toward a future in which all are free, it is a complex and messy struggle. Starting this Thursday at 7 p.m., I'll be leading a six-session class here at UUCF called What's Fair and Who Decides? Navigating the Ethics of Privilege in which we'll reflect on this struggle for collective liberation from many different angles. You're welcome to join us for many or a few of that sessions, however many you are able to attend. More information is available at frederickuu.org privilege. Our second UU source is the words and deeds of prophetic men and women that challenge us to confront powers and structures of evil with justice, compassion, and the transforming power of love. Anne Braden was one of those modern day social prophets. In 2002, looking back on her life from the perspective of her late 70s, Anne said, you know, often people nowadays say, you gave up so much, going from that first side of your handout to the other. Referring to the life, she said, that I left a life of privilege and became an outcast. Until like the 90s, which is when she started constantly getting like alumni awards and all this kind of stuff, which was really bewildering for her. Uh, She said, I've actually come to think of myself as lucky because I was able to escape from the prisons that I had grown up in and I was able to join the human race. What more can you ask of life than that? In the coming days, I invite you to reflect on who are those people who have come before you in life and inspired you? Jungians call that, we talk a lot about in Jungian psychology about your shadow, these shadows that we have that repress and come out in these ugly ways, but Jungian psychology also talks about a golden shadow. Your golden shadow is when someone's life story really resonates with you, that Jungians would say, that's calling that untapped potential within you out. It's calling it to emerge. And I look forward to exploring with you in the future figures such as Andre Lorde, Gloria Anzaldúa, Suzanne, Suzanne Farr, Angela Davis, Barbara Smith, Elizabeth Batita Martinez, Ida B. Wells, Abby Kelly, Septima Clark, Ajin Poo. For each of us to whom those are not household names, may they become so, including for myself. May we inscribe them increasingly onto our family tree. We've got some homework to do, but it's good homework. It's good work if you can get it.